Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles now and uh, turn in them to the Gospel of Luke and chapter number 16 in the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a seat in front of you, and you could turn in the back portion of that to page number 60, and you would be at Luke chapter 16. I want to begin this morning by telling you a story about two men who were marooned on a remote island. And while they were marooned, one guy was just really nervous and tense about it. He was pacing back. He was frantic. He was worrying about what was going to happen to them. The other guy was very different. He was very relaxed. In fact, he was, he was laying out on the beach, sunning himself. And the first guy comes up to the second guy who was sunning himself, and he says, Aren't you concerned? I mean, aren't you worried? Aren't you a little bit concerned about anything here? I mean, in fact, frankly, we could die here. And the second guy says, nope. Just continues to sun himself there on the beach. First guy goes, why are you not worried? Why are you not concerned? And he said, now, just hold on a second. See, you need to understand that I have an income that is well into six figures. And you need to understand that I tithe at my church every week. And he said, my pastor will find me. (laughs) Yeah, he's going to track me down no matter where I may be. We are continuing on our series of messages in our Pass It On series where we talk about lighting the way for the next generation. And the key part of Pass It On involves an initiative to develop a new children's ministry building. Now some of you are thinking, I've been through these building things before and I know it's always coming. There's going to be a particular day when we're going to receive the Sermon on the amount. And we have reached that day today when we want to talk about the Sermon on the Amount. And what's interesting, whenever you start talking about money and you talk about investing in something like a new children's ministry building, our natural response is very interesting. By the way, I hope you go and visit our website at wildwoodchurch.org, and part of what you're going to see on that website is a great links section. And if you haven't investigated that, you need to because we have all kinds of links. I mean, fabulous links to all sorts of things on the internet. But under one of our folders there of links, we have a folder called finances. And one of the links under that is common excuses for not giving to the Lord's work. And as you go through these, these are very common excuses that come up. And then you can click on them and you'll have a biblical answer to that excuse. I want to just share with you some of those excuses for not giving to the Lord's work. They go like this. The first one is, it's my money, I earned it. Another excuse is, my giving is a private matter between God and me and no one else. Another excuse, the Bible is about religious and moral issues and not about money at all, let alone giving. How about this common excuse? The Bible commands us to give in secret, so we shouldn't even be talking about this. Here's another one. The Bible says that each man should give what he has decided in his own heart to give, so I am free to give as much 
or as little or even none at all. And then here's one other gift, excuse for not giving to the Lord's work. God loves a cheerful giver, but I'm not particularly cheerful about giving, so it's better to not give at all. Well, you know what we really need is supernatural perspective when it comes to this whole issue of money. And I don't know if you know it or not, but did you know that the Bible has 1,500 verses in it on the subject matter of money? In fact, one out of six verses in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke deals with the subject matter of money. About one-third of the parables that Jesus told were built around the subject matter of money. The number one topic that Jesus talked about was money. He talked about money more than he talked about heaven and more than he talked about hell. Now what we need to do is just pause it right there and ask this question. Why is that so? Why in the world would the Bible have 1,500 verses on money? Why would Jesus talk about money more than he even talked about heaven or hell? And I think a big part of the answer is this, that money and how we handle money is a great barometer on our spiritual heart. How we handle money is an accurate measuring stick of where our heart is. Remember what Jesus said? He said, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Dr. Ryrie, who was one of my favorite professors, I think hit the nail squarely on the head when it came to this whole idea of how we relate to money. He says, in some ways, it proves our love more conclusively than depth of knowledge, length of prayers, or prominence of service, serving him. These things can be feigned, but the use of our possessions shows us up for what we really are. What I want to talk about today are the basics about money and giving. Now, as I go through these basics, and I've tried to uh, package as much of these basics into one message as I could, for some of us who are here today, this is going to be very new territory. Maybe some of what you're going to hear today you have never heard before. For many of us, we're going to say, well, I've heard these things before. I've heard these basic principles before. But you know what? The issue for us in our spiritual life is never whether or not we've heard something. That's never the issue. The issue that we need to work through is are we living what we have heard? You know, Peter, when he wrote to the believers, he said, I want to stir you up by way of reminder the things that I've already taught you. Why was that necessary? Because they had not heard it? No, it was necessary because... They needed to rethink things. They needed to re-wrestle with things. Because what's important is whether we're living it or not. I've been working with going to uh, lead the Family Life Marriage Conferences for now 12 years. And we're headed to California this next week. And I hope that you'll be in prayer for that. But one of the things that comes up and people sometimes ask me is, well, do you, do you learn anything from these? Do you get anything out of these things? And I say, absolutely I do. But I want you to know something. I've been doing it for 12 years. Do you think I hear something I've never heard before? Doesn't happen that way. It's the same basic information. 
gets repeated in these marriage conferences. But you know what? I get great benefit out of it because the issue isn't, have I heard it? (laughs) The issue is, am I living it? And so as I go to these weekends and I listen to another speaker presenting the material that I've already heard, I'm processing that. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, I've gotten out of touch with that in my life. Even as I'm up there speaking and sharing marriage principles, I'm under self-conviction about it because I'm saying, you know, man, this principle is so clear, and yet I've just disconnected from it. So I'm really not interested in whether we've heard it or not or whether I've heard any of this stuff. The key thing is, are we living it out? I want to talk this morning about gaining what matters See, we don't want to gain what really doesn't matter. What we really want to do at the core of our being is we want to gain what matters. And we get some insight into that in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16, verses 1 to 13. And this is a parable that Jesus told about the shrewd steward, as many people call it. I like to call it the parable of the foresightful manager. Now, because we're covering so much information, I don't have time to work our way through the parable. I want you to read through it and think your way through it. But I want you to get to really what I think is the bottom line of the story in verse 9. This is where Jesus delivers the lesson. And here's the lesson. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when it fails, that is the wealth of unrighteousness they will receive you into eternal dwellings. What's he talking about here? He's talking about, when he talks about the wealth of unrighteousness, he's talking about worldly resources. And he's saying, here's the lesson of the story, that we use worldly resources to help develop a welcome committee for us in heaven. In other words, we're using worldly resources to win over friends, We're exchanging money for people's souls. And the idea here is that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a welcoming committee there who would thank you or thank me that we invested in a particular ministry that made a difference in a person's life. And when they get to heaven, they want to thank the one that made that investment. You know, we can't take it with us, but in one sense, we can send it on ahead. And, you know, a lot of times we say, well, when you get money and you spend it, it's gone forever. Listen, that's not true. What we give to the kingdom of God is not gone forever. And so the idea is that we use our worldly resources in exchange for people's lives and souls. That's what it's really all about. Now, here's our plan for today. As we go through all of this, I want to look at two different sets of things. Number one, I want to look at three foundational truths when it comes to money and giving. Three foundational truths. If we're going to talk about gaining what matters, we need to understand the foundational truths upon which other things stand. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at four giving principles. Now, we're going to move quickly today. I want to encourage you to write these things down. They're important truths we're going to be looking at, important principles. They will revolutionize your life. All right, three foundational truths. Here's foundational truth number one. Foundational truth number one is that God is the owner and I am the manager. 
This is the first basic that we need to master. God is the owner and I am the manager. Now we're not going to look up every verse, but I'll give you the references and you can look them up later. In Psalm 50, verse 12, God declares, The world is mine and all that is in it. I am the owner of everything is what God is saying. In Job 41.11, he declares this, Everything under heaven belongs to me. Everything under heaven includes everything that I have and everything that you have. God is the owner of it all. Now, in the inside, we like to respond somewhat this way when we hear that. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Now, wait just a minute here. I earned it. I went out and did the work. I'm the one who earned all of that. What do you mean God is the owner of it all? Well, I'm going to share with you a couple of verses that have revolutionized my thinking in this regard. The first one is Deuteronomy 8.18. And it says there that He, God, gives to us the power to make wealth. In other words, who do you think gave you the ability to go out and work? Who do you think ultimately even gave the opportunity to do that? Who gave you the skill set, the intelligence, the good health? In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, it asks this question, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is ultimately Zippo. Even the breaths that we get from God are a gift from his hand. And you know, that's really truly changed the way I look at things. And I've shared this before, and I've been doing this for several years. When I get my paycheck from Wildwood Community Church, before I go to deposit that thing, I get on my knees with that in my hand, and I thank God that he was gracious enough to allow me to earn that money. You see, everything comes from his hand everything. God is the owner. And what that really means is that we all own the same amount. You know, you're looking around, you think, ah, just look what he's got, and look at what she's got. The reality is, we've all got the same amount. We all own the same amount. We own absolutely zero. God is the owner of all things, and I am, the Bible teaches us, a manager The idea here in the New Testament was the idea of being a steward. And what a steward did is it would take the assets, be handed the assets of another person, and that steward would manage those assets with the interests of the owner in mind. And when you are a manager or a steward, it means that you have to give account to the owner. God is the owner, and I am the manager. Now, some of you are sitting out there, yeah, I know that, I know that. I've heard that. But see, the key question is not have we heard that? Are we living our life in light of that reality? See, that's the bottom line. Daniel Webster, who was a, during his time a senator and also the Secretary of State in the United States, said this, The most profound and important thought ever to occupy my mind is that I am individually accountable to Almighty God. See, that will affect how we handle and use 
our money and resources that God has given to us. The first foundational truth is that God is the owner, I am the manager. Here comes the second foundational truth. I must choose who I'll serve. I must choose who I'll serve. Turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 6. If we're going to gain what matters, we must understand that I must choose who I'll serve. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus speaking. He says, no one can serve two masters. You can't jump at two different people who are talking to you. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now here comes the lesson. He says, you, that means me, that means you, cannot serve God and wealth. What Jesus is saying is pick one. Pick the one that you're going to serve. And you know what? That needs to be a weekly choice that we make. It's really a daily choice that we make. We must choose who I will serve. If our master is wealth, here's the way we tend to operate. When our master is wealth, we begin to think that being happy means that I have stuff, and I hold on to stuff. That's how you get happy. If God is our master, we know that being happy comes from knowing him and serving him. See the difference between them? And he says, you've got to pick one. Choose who you're going to serve. When we're having wealth as our master, then, then money and stuff becomes the end. When God is our master, then money and stuff becomes a tool to be used for the glory of God. When wealth is our master, the focus is primarily me. When God is our master, the focus is primarily on others. And sometimes we think, well, you know, I've, <laughs> I, don't have, I don't have that problem of serving wealth. Let me just give you an indicator, an indicator of when wealth is our master. And one little indicator that wealth can be our master is what I like to call the sticky finger syndrome the sticky finger syndrome. It goes something like this. Well, when a church talks about, hey, pass it on, lighting the way for the next generation, we want to develop a children's ministry building, and, and we would like you to invest in that. Here's how the sticky finger syndrome works. The very first response to that statement, we wouldn't say this publicly, but the very first internal response is, you know, I'm really kind of reluctant to give to that. In fact, I'm a, there's a little indignation that you're even asking me. See, that's an indicator of the sticky finger syndrome. And then the second response usually is, okay, I guess there's going to be a little pressure to give, so how, how, how little can I give? Hmm, how little? See, that little sticky finger syndrome is an indicator that at that moment we're really serving wealth rather than God. Hey, I want to do a little exercise this morning. I want to get a little involvement going, all right? Let's all do this together, everybody now. I don't want any reluctance. What I want you to do is I want you to get out your billfold. It might be uh, a little purse that you carry. Uh, it might be where you keep your credit cards. It might be your checkbook. I want everybody to get it out. I mean everybody, all right, every single person. Don't be stubborn. Jump into this little group participation thing we're going to do. I want you to get out that billfold, whatever it may be. And I want you to look at it for a moment, all right? This represents... God's main rival for our affections. Everybody got it out? I don't see everybody has one now, okay? I may have to single you out. 
I want everybody to have them out. This tends to represent our main rival for God's affections. Now what I want you to do is I want you to hold it there. And I want you to kind of stare at it just a little bit. If you want to caress it just a little, you know, you can do that. Because what you have here is really a modern temple. It's what we tend to look to to feel secure, successful, and significant. And while, you're, while you have that there, here's what I want you to ask this question of yourself. Are you holding it or is it holding you? Now, as part of our little exercise, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your billfold or whatever it may be, and I want you to hand it to the person next to you, all right? Not to your spouse, but to someone else. And if you've got to get up in your row and walk over to someone, I want you to do it, all right? Hand it over. Come on, don't be stubborn. Hand it over to someone else next to you, okay? Feeling a little bit of nervousness, aren't you, huh? Just makes you feel a little queasy. I'm having to let go for a minute. Interesting to watch your faces. Now what we're going to do is we're going to take an offering. Yeah. It's going to be the most generous offering you've ever given ever in history. All right, go ahead, return it. Return it to the original manager of it. Not the original owner, but the original manager. See, foundational truth number one is that God is the owner and I am the manager. Foundational truth number two is that I must choose who I'll serve. Foundational truth number three is this. Money stuff is deceitful. Money stuff is deceitful. When Jesus told the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 22, he makes this little statement about the deceitfulness of of wealth. In what way is wealth deceitful? We see the world wants to sell us on this idea. Stuff, money and stuff satisfies. And all you need to do is get a little bit more money and a little bit more stuff and you will be satisfied. That's what the world wants to sell us on. You know, a Barna survey was done and it said this, that the average American said that if they could earn $8,000 more a year, they would be satisfied. You feel that way? Oh, if I could just make $8,000 more a year, then I would be satisfied. Would that happen? No, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen at all. Because the world's selling us a counterfeit concept. And money and stuff can be deceitful. In fact, Solomon, who had more money than anyone who ever lived, said this, whoever loves money never has enough. See, if we're looking to that to satisfy, it's never going to work because we always are going to need more. In fact, looking to money and stuff for satisfaction is like taking in salt you take in salt, and what it does is it increases your thirst. And when we take in money and stuff with the idea it's going to satisfy us, it will increase our thirst and our appetite for more. It's just true. 
In fact, an interesting survey was done of North American churchgoers, and they calculated out what North American churchgoers gave in the Great Depression in the year 1933. You know, if you weren't around then, basically people had trouble even getting something to eat on a regular basis in the Great Depression. But in 1933, North American churchgoers gave an average of 3.3% of their per capita income. In 2004, after 50 years of prosperity, North American churchgoers give 2.5% of their per capita income. See, we need to realize that money and stuff is deceitful. Just because we have more doesn't mean that we even give as much as when we don't have that much. Now, it means, of course, that life is easier. Certainly in 2004, life is easier. But it doesn't mean that people are happier at all. In fact, I was just talking to my wife recently, and we were talking about the fact we're at the, the point of our life, you know, when we, when we are able to have a little bit more of some things because we have three kids that are grown and out of the home. And we were just talking about that, and I said, you know what, do you, would you say because we have a little more stuff and we have a little more flexibility, are we really happier now? You know, in some ways life is easier, but I can't say that we're just happier now at all. In fact, prosperity tends to undermine our dependency on God. And prosperity, if we're not careful, will misdirect us from true happiness. So those are the foundational truths. You've got to have those clear. God is the owner. I am the manager. I must choose who I'll serve, and money and stuff is deceitful. Now, with that as our foundation... We want to look very quickly at four giving principles, and I'm going to encourage you to be writing these things down. They're important principles. Here's the first principle of giving. We are to give consistently. We're to give consistently. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and I want you to see verse 2. When we talk about gaining what matters... And giving, we need to realize that we are to give consistently. Now, here's something to, to understand in all of this. You know that God doesn't need anything. You ever think about that? Think God needs what you've got or what I've got? Does God need that? No, God doesn't need anything. But he, what, what he wants to do is he wants us to grow in faith. And he wants us to grow in grace. Now, look at what Paul says to the believers in chapter 16, verse 2. It says, on the first day of every week, each of you, if you underline your Bible, you might want to underline that phrase, each of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that collections, offerings can be made when I come. Some amazing truths and principles in here. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to do this. Now, they were paid sometimes daily and, and, and always, almost always then if they weren't paid daily, they were paid weekly. We tend to be paid monthly. And so the idea here would be that we are to give consistently on a monthly basis. Now, I want to take a moment just to be boldly honest with you here. And I want you to listen to what I'm saying very, very carefully, okay? So I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But I, I believe this is what this principle is teaching us. If you purchase things beyond 
food, clothing, and shelter. Without also investing in God's kingdom, you have misplaced priorities. Now, now listen to what I said again, based on what this text is showing us. If you purchase more than food, clothing, and shelter, without also investing in the kingdom of God, we are guilty of having misplaced priorities because the Bible says clearly that we are to give consistently. In fact, when we start talking about uh, the Pass It On initiative and developing a children's ministry building, I'm just going to be real honest again in this. I want to see at Wildwood 100% participation. And even a nine-year-old can participate in this. You know, even someone who's nine years old who might be able to do having little jobs around the house or someplace else could, could take $5 a week and invest it in seeing the reality over a three-year commitment period of having a children's ministry building. And if they did that over three years, that nine-year-old could invest 800 bucks, almost $1,000 and seeing a children's ministry building developed. I want to see 100% participation because this is a call to all of us, every one of us who knows Jesus Christ. We are to give consistently. Now, and the second principle of giving we want to look at is that we are to give proportionally. We are to give proportionally. And I think this is a very important principle. I want to turn to two passages. The first one is Acts chapter 11. And then the second one is Deuteronomy 16. And you look like a pretty skilled group of people today, so maybe you could turn to both of those passages at once. Acts chapter 11 and also Deuteronomy chapter 16. And we want to look at these two verses that talk about how when we give, we are to give proportionally. Notice Acts chapter 11 verse 29. It says, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined, you'll notice this, is 100% participation. Each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren while living in Judea. But I want you to notice it says, and in the proportion that they had means. 100% participation, but it was proportionately, as based on how God had blessed them and the resources that God had given to them. Look in the Old Testament at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 17. This has always been part of God's economy for investing in the kingdom. In verse 17 it says, Every man shall give as he, who is, as he is able. Notice it says again, 100% participation. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given to you. The idea here is equal commitment but not equal contribution. Now this principle of giving, of giving proportionally, is both an encouragement and it's also a challenge. It's an encouragement because of this. You do not have to give a large amount to be a big giver in the eyes of God. That's encouraging. You remember the story of the widow and the penny that she gave. 
And you had all these people bringing in these huge amounts of, in terms of a gift. And when that widow showed up, Jesus said, well, hold on, you need to understand something. She gave more than anyone else. Because God understands the, the principle of giving proportionally. And that's a cool thing with God. You don't have to give a large amount to be a big giver. But it's also, this principle, a challenge. Because what it means for me is that, that I need to be, on a regular basis, reevaluating my giving as God gives to me resources to manage. And the reason why I need to reevaluate, it is very easy to succumb in our culture to affluenza. Affluenza is all around us. When we talk about giving proportionally, this is what it might look like. Let's just use 10% as, as an illustration here. And if you make $30,000 a year and you give 10%, that means you're going to live on $27,000 a year, right? All your other expenses come out of that. But if you make $130,000 a year and you give 10%, you're living on $117,000. Do you see the difference is? I mean, who's really giving here even though the amount is the same? That's why we need to give proportionally. And what was really interesting to me is I came across these statistics on giving at different levels of annual income and the percentage that that level gives away. And you just look at that. People who make under $10,000 a year uh, in our culture give 3.6%. 10 to 20,000, 3.4%. 20 to 30,000, 2.5%. But then notice, even as people make more and they're given more, the giving goes down some. 30 to 40,000, 1.8. 40 to 50,000, 2.3%. 50 to 75,000, now we're down to 2% being given away. 75 to 100, it goes lower than the hat. 1.9%. a year and above. The average being given is 2.5%. What's the problem? Affluenza. Even though God blesses more greatly, we're giving the same or even less as we get more. Patrick Morley, who is a businessman who has worked with a lot of wealthy businessmen, said this, and this is so true. He said, the greater proportion of a man's income that he gives, the happier he is. Happiness is not what you keep. That's a deception. It's what you give. And so the question I think we all need to wrestle with is how long has it been since we reevaluated? How long has my giving been stagnant? The same level. How long has it been since I reevaluated from the proportional principle of how God has blessed me? So we are to give consistently. We are to give proportionately. The third principle of giving is that we are to give generously. And I'll just give you the passages. 1 Timothy 6.18, Paul says, Be generous, ready to share. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it has this whole section on if you desire to have a greater harvest of righteousness for eternity, that you sow generously, that you are very generous with the seed that we invest in the kingdom of God. And that's such a tremendous, this principle is such a tremendous contrast with that auto-response that we tend to have. A lot of responses, well, how little can I give, you know? How, how, how little can I give to this? Rather than a generous response is, how much can I give? 
Now, men and women, we've got to recognize what's going on in our culture. There is a magnetic pull in our culture towards hoarding, okay? Do you know that there are 30,000 self-storage facilities in the United States today? In 1960, there were none. None. And that means more than a billion square feet of storage space that we have outside of our homes in America today at a cost of rental of $12 billion a year. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that if you're, if you're renting a storage space that you're carnal, okay? Don't, don't go there. I'm not saying that because some of us have very legitimate reasons for that. But I'm looking at the culture. What are we doing? $12 billion a year to rent storage spaces? God says we are to give generously. I want you to write down the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 13. And I want you to just go visit that this week and read through there. And it says that as we give generously, uh, God's grace will abound in our life when we are generous. And the reason why is that God has a bigger shovel than we do. And as we generously shovel and invest in the kingdom of God, His shovel is bigger. And He is able to make grace abound back to us. So if we're going to be biblical, we need to give consistently, we need to give proportionately, we need to give generously, and fourthly, I believe we need to give creatively. And here's what happens to us. When we start talking about particularly a project, and I've been through a few of these over the years at Wildwood, and we talk about a three-year commitment we would like to see from people, a lot of times we, we, we just think, I, don't, I really can't do anything. But we need, to, we need to give creatively. And here's really what I believe is true for us. I believe that almost all of us live life in the fast lane. We are in the left lane with the pedal to the metal and the engines rumbling at high speed. And what I believe we really need to do as a people is, particularly in light of the Pass It On initiatives, I think we just need to slow down a little bit. We need to let off the gas and we need to give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to direct us. And you know what I found out over the years is I found over the years that the Holy Spirit tends to whisper what He wants to communicate to us. And so we need to slow it down and quiet it down and see how the Holy Spirit is leading and let Him lead. And some of us are, are, are you know, we're high school or still in high school or we're a college student and we hear about building a children's ministry facility, and we talk about 100% participation, and immediately we say, I can't give anything. Listen, I know the reaction. I was a high school student in a church that was doing things like this. I was a college student. I know exactly the reaction that there tends to be. But you need to think creatively about giving. For example, just one example. If every week you decided for the next three years to give up one meal and a drink that you would order at that meal out a week, That'd be about $10. And you do that over the three-year period, and you would be giving to the Pass It On Initiative $1,560. See, we need to give creatively, and we need to think creatively about things. I want to just tell you a little bit about how this happened with me so far, and this isn't all that, that, uh, that I'm doing or anything, and even remotely with the project, but... I was having one of those quiet moments with the Spirit of God as I was simply saying, what would you have me to give? 
And uh, the interchange, I mean, it wasn't an audible interchange. It was just sort of internal communication. It went something like this. You know, I don't know really God. Uh, I don't know what all I ought to do. And, you know, I got this response back. Well, you know, uh, this year there's a, there's a tax rebate that the government is giving. Ah, uh, well, you know, you know, I know there's a tax rebate, but, you know, the president says that we're to spend that tax rebate. <laughs> and I want to do what the president says. And besides that, God, you know, it's looking like we're going to have to uh, replace one of our vehicles, you know, and that would sure come in kind of handy. For, you know, and as we were just going through that, it was, it was like God was saying, you know what, you need to do, that. that's not an accident, the timing of this. Bruce, I, I'd like you and Janet to spend that. Yeah, I want you to spend it. I want you to invest it for eternity. It's like, okay, I got the message. See, we, we need to to give creatively. And maybe God is, good, is giving to you a bonus and, and you need to think about that. Maybe there's stock that you have that you can sell. Uh, maybe there's a, a series of garage sales you want to do for the next three years to raise money. Uh, maybe you have some gold coins or some jewelry that you would like to invest in the Pass It On initiative. We've had people do that in the past. Bring them right on in and say, I want to give these gold coins that I've been holding. Uh, maybe you want to sell stuff. Maybe you want to take a special job. Maybe you want to make things and sell them. Maybe you even have property that you would want to invest in the Pass It On initiative. But you see, what we need to do is we need to give creatively. Maybe God blessed you in an extra special way in recent times, and you should stop and say, why would God do that? Well, maybe one of the reasons why he did that is he wants you to grow in your giving generously. And I want to say this, it's amazing what God can do when God is at work in us in a collective way. It's called the power of participation, men and women. And I just want to give you one illustration here just to show you the power of participation. We have 325 family units, 325 addresses at Wildwood. And if all 325 gave $100 a month, for the next three years. And I understand, but don't, just an illustration. I know some, for some of us that's a stretch beyond which we were ever able to go. For many of us, we can go there and way past there. But I'm just trying to show you the power of participation. If we have 325 family units that give $100 a month, you know what that is? $32,500 a month. And then you time that times three years, and there you have $1.2 million. I'm just trying to show you the power of participation. And so my plea to you would be that we would slow down and listen to the Holy Spirit. And it is very likely that part of what God wants to do in each of our lives is to grow us in our practice of generosity. Now, I want to leave us with some questions for reflection, and I want to encourage you to jot these down. These are good for us to review through. Here's the first question for reflection. Is our perspective about money, stuff, what God says it should be? That's a great question to ask and reflect on. Second question for reflection. Is my giving proportionate to my income? Good question to ask. Has my giving gone stagnant? How long has it been since I reevaluated? A third question for reflection. Is my model of giving worthy of imitation? Is it worthy of imitation by my kids 
And we encourage you to, to involve your kids in this process. Is it worthy of imitation for new believers as they're trying to observe our life? And then the last question for reflection is this. How does God want to use me? And, you know, we, we are here today. We are standing on the shoulders of the people of God who were at Wildwood in the decades before we were here. And there's going to be some people who come after us who will be standing on our shoulders. And the question we want to ask is, what is God, how does God want to use me? And by the way, I know we packed a lot into this message and we went through it quickly. We are giving away copies of this message. If you want to review through it, you want to listen to it again, you want to give it to someone else, you can go over to the Light Source bookstore. We're giving this message away. But I want us just to close in prayer as, as the worship team comes and, and they get ready to lead us in a closing song. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you again for your word, and it's so helpful to us. It's so corrective to us. It's so illuminating to us because so often we're just drawn along by the magnetic pull of the culture. And Lord, we think we understand that you have a heart for people, and we believe that you've been leading us to expand our ministry to children through the Passing On Initiative, and we would pray that you would be at work in your people to do a great thing, to provide resources for us to be able to expand our ministry so that we can touch hearts that are wet cement and that lives can be changed not only for a time on this planet but for all eternity. Do great things, we pray. We pray that you, what you do, you'll do beyond the ability of even what we're asking, that you would do it by the greatness of your power and for the honor of Jesus Christ, whom we love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.